verses 30 to 60. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, 
I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you have spoken to us in the scriptures. And we pray that you would give to us today ears to hear. We thank you, Lord, that for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we have new hearts. And we pray that as your voice thunders to us today from the scriptures, our hearts would receive the implanted word and that our lives would respond with praise and worship. Oh, Lord, help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In 1948, Jim Elliot penned these words in his diary, quote, I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. Two years later, at 23, he wrote, I must not think it strange if God takes in youth those whom I would have kept on earth till they were older. God is peopling eternity, and I must not restrict him to old men and women. Two years after that, at age 25, he said goodbye to his parents, and he embarked on an 18-day journey to Ecuador to reach the Alca tribe for, for Jesus. A week after arriving, he and the other four missionaries that he'd journeyed with saw two women coming out of the jungle. They weren't coming peaceably. A terrifying cry came from behind them, and upon turning around, they saw a group of male warriors with spears lifted. They ran the missionaries through, and the missionaries entered into the joy of their master. Here's the reality. The more you seek to live for Jesus Christ, the closer you will get to the front lines of his battle. We have an enemy. An enemy who is armed with cruel hate in a devil-filled world, as Martin Luther put it. And so far in our study of the book of Acts, we've seen that Hatred break into time and space. Gospel breakthroughs have run parallel with satanic opposition. So there's been opposition from the outside. As the religious leaders had sought to and, and had opposed and arrested the apostles, they'd warned them to speak no more in Jesus' name. And then there had been opposition from the inside. As Ananias and Sapphira, through their hypocrisy, had sought to threaten the purity of the church and lie to the Holy Spirit. And last week, 
The enemy's tactic was perhaps the most genius yet. It was distraction. You remember the apostles had been swamped with practical needs within the congregation and they were at great danger, at great risk of overlooking what God had called them to do, prayer and the ministry of the word. But they responded in just the right way. They told the church to choose from among them men full of the Holy Spirit of good repute who were able to meet practical needs. And so it should come as no surprise to us today that the response of the enemy was to go on the attack. The point of our passage today is God's enemies reject God's purposes. God's enemies reject God's purposes. But before we come to the passage, do allow me to say our passage today is hard for a couple of reasons. It's hard because it's long. 67 verses. And there is so much compounded in to those 67 verses that some have erroneously taught that Stephen's speech is nothing more than unrestrained waffle. He's going nowhere. He's saying nothing. George George Bernard, Bernard Shaw called Stephen, quote, a quite intolerable young speaker, a tactless and conceited bore. Wow. So someone else said that Stephen was just binding his time. He knew what was coming. Maybe he could see the rocks in people's hands, and so he pulled out the longest sermon he could possibly preach to put off the inevitable. But those awful explanations say far more about the critics of Stephen than they do about Stephen's speech itself, as God willing we'll see today. The hardest part of today's passage, though, is where it ends. It ends in bloodshed. Stephen was the first Christian martyr for Jesus Christ. And last week, you remember, Stephen was described as a man of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And today we will see why. The the mob, the crowd that had assembled, they could not withstand his wisdom. And so all they could do was resort to slinging mud at Stephen. They had nothing else. And despite being accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses, ironically, Stephen's face glows with the same glow that Moses' face had shone with when he came down from the Mount of Sinai. But if you will follow me today, you will be helped by the end, I hope and pray. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of sharing the gospel with a a loved one, maybe a family or a friend. You're on good terms with this person. They know you, you know them, you love them, they love you. And you only said a brief word, but they responded to you with such hostility that you walked away feeling absolutely baffled. Stephen's speech today will clarify for you what was going on underneath the surface in that moment. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. But if you have ever turned the lights on in someone's room who's been sleeping, you know they don't thank you for it. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if you've ever poured salt in an open wound, that person didn't thank you for that either, did they? The apostle Paul said, to some, we are the aroma of life to life. 
And to others, we are the aroma of death unto death. And so don't be discouraged in those moments when you're rejected for the gospel. Instead, be informed as to what's really going on under the surface. And that's what we have today is that animosity spills out over the surface level in Acts chapter 6 and 7. God's enemies reject God's purposes. And today we're going to see, number one, his global purposes, and number two, his saving purposes. Number one, his global purposes. When, when we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 13, that the crowd said, this man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that is, Jerusalem in the temple, and the law, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. The reason that that was so successful a charge, the reason it stirred up so much within the mob is because it was a misrepresentation of what Jesus had said. And what Stephen had relayed, no doubt, in his preaching ministry. You remember Jesus has said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was talking about the temple of his body. And then in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus had promised that before this generation had passed away, the Jerusalem temple would be destroyed. But as Stephen responds to their slander, his first point is to say, This is not blasphemy, this is consistency, consistency because God has always been working outside of Jerusalem and outside of the temple for generations. And now that there is a greater temple in the Lord Jesus Christ, now that there is a greater and a holier place, the gospel is now free to flow and to run from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth where God has always been working in the first place. So he argues from Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon, the connecting feature of these four epochs, right, John Stott, hear this now, is that none of them, That in none of them was God's presence limited to any particular place. On the contrary, the God of the Old Testament was the living God, a God on the move and on the march, who was always calling his people out to fresh adventures, always accompanying and directing them as they went. So Stephen says, look, the God of Abraham appeared to Abram when Abram was busy worshipping the moon in Ur of the Chaldeans, not in Jerusalem. And then having come into Canaan before God had given him a foot's breadth of the land, God was still his friend. And even though for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he was in Pharaoh's court in Egypt, not in Canaan, God was giving his people salvation by his hand. And then at the end of a second 40-year period in Moses' life, God appeared to him in Midian, not in Jerusalem, and said, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. There was holy ground outside of the holy land. Wherever God is, is holy, wrote one commentator. And then during the next 40-year period in Moses' life, God delivered the law. 
at Mount Sinai, not in the Jerusalem temple. God was working before we Jews were in Jerusalem, says Stephen. God was working before the temple was existed, had existed. And even when the temple was inaugurated, what is the temple given God is an infinite God and even the highest heaven cannot contain him? And now the fullness of deity dwelt bodily in Christ. All nations are now white for his harvest. It's not about one nation. It's about us reaching all nations. It's not about one place. It's about reaching all places. It's not that the gospel is glorious enough for one city, but is so glorious it is for all cities of the world. And to that, we all want to say a loud amen. Why then didn't Stephen's persecutors? Because if what Stephen was saying was true, they were no longer as central as they wanted to be. Stephen's bottom line was, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need our ethnicity. God doesn't need our territory. God doesn't even need our temple, the place in which he had put his name. And so the people were outraged because the eyes of the world were no longer on them. Their eyes were to be now on the nations of the world. And friends, if we don't believe that this could be us, it probably will be us. Some of you were thinking as Matthew was delivering the children's talk, hey, it's not candy, it's sweets. The Bible says so. We are all prone to believe that God is British. (laughs) Friends, it's not about us. Do you know, a friend of mine was teaching a, a Greek class in his church. And one of the people in his class said to him, the teacher, hey, why is it that people want to read the Bible in Greek anyway? And he said, well, w- what do you mean? And, and this person said, well, you know, like in, in sermons, right? Like pastors will say, now the Greek here says, what, why do they even care about that? And he said, well, because Greek is the language that God chose to have most of the New Testament written in. Written in. And this student said, what? And he said, yeah, like what, what language did you think it was written in? And this student said, well, English. Well, obviously. Now, I know that person. And I know that that person isn't stupid. Uh, That person isn't slow in the head. The assumption was, we are neutral. The assumption was, everyone else needs to join us. Because we are at the center of what the kingdom's all about. But Stephen's first point was, God has never been restricted to one place. He is a global God, not a local God. And now that all has been fulfilled in Jesus, it is time for a return to normality. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I'm a Bob Dylan fan. And maybe the song that speaks to me most in Bob Dylan's catalog is the song with God on our side. And you would expect any Christian to like singing along to a song like that. But the reality is that song is a scathing rebuke of all of the movements in history that have slapped the name uh, of God onto their cause to justify whatever it is that they're doing. Political, societal cause. 
and that was Stephen's persecutors. And every generation has the potential for that to be them. Friends, it is not about us. It's not about our church. It's about God's kingdom. It's not about our ministry. It's about God's work. It's not about our church building. It's about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the nations. And that is what it has always been about. And that is what it will always be about. So that even if the West's legacy of producing towering theologians all comes to an end in view of where our culture seems to be going, and all of the theological giants of the future are Iranian or Chinese or South Korean, then so be it. Because God is not British. God is not Western. God is a global God. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not Western, but is global. What Stephen's persecuted needed to see, though, was that there is more joy in being about God's global purposes than there is in God being about our purposes for our glory. The reality is, friends, our names and our causes and even our church will one day be forgotten about. But the kingdom of Christ will last forever. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of a kingdom infinitely bigger than yourself, infinitely bigger than your ministry, infinitely bigger than our church? A kingdom that is as permanent as God himself, no matter where you are located on planet earth and in the map. God's enemies reject God's purposes. Number one, God's global purposes. But secondly, God's saving purposes. Not only are you, say Stephen, those who reject God's purposes for the nations, but you are those who reject God's purposes for yourself and of God's for your own salvation. Our fathers rejected Moses, whom God used to bring about a temporal salvation, and you are those who reject Christ, who God sent to bring an eternal redemption. And God's chosen leaders all throughout redemptive history have been identified and marked by rejection, not through acceptance. It was true for Joseph, says Stephen and his brothers. It was true for Moses. It was true for the prophets. It was true for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have betrayed and murdered, the holy and righteous one. Such that as Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They could not see Christ. And even as Stephen prayed, just as Jesus had prayed from the cross, giving up his spirit, praying for the forgiveness of his persecutors, they did not, they could not, and they would not see Christ because they had rejected him. Friends, what we have here is sin under the microscope. This is what sin really is. If you were to leave this place right now and start interacting with people on the street and you ask them the question, what is sin? If they had any concept, if they had any category of sin at all, 
it would all boil down to actions or deeds. They would say, well, sin is, you know, committing adultery. Sin is murder. Sin is theft or, uh, uh, or stealing or lying. And those things are sins. But the reason that they're sins is because they are the fruit of, the, of a root that has rejected God. Why would we do that? Because if God is God, we are not. If salvation is of the Lord, all boasting is taken clean out of my hands. And all that's left is gratitude and praise, not pride and arrogance. Left to ourselves, friends, we would much rather thrust God aside and his saving purposes in Jesus to establish a righteousness of our own. Here in Acts chapter 6 and 7, it was a religious righteousness. Today, in our context, it is a secular righteousness. It is justification by recycling. It is justification by green and keeping the earth and the planet a sustainable, safe place. No non-Christian has ever rejected the gospel because of science. No non-Christian has ever rejected the gospel because of alleged contradictions in the Bible. They are all smokescreens. The gospel is rejected because of pride. Non-Christians reject the gospel because the gospel gives 100% of the glory to Christ, not to man. And that was why Stephen was rejected as he preached about all of God's people rejecting the saving purposes of God for themselves. Donald Gray Barnhouse once asked, what would things look like if Satan took full control of a city? If Satan took full control of this city, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. The devil loves Christless Christianity. The devil loves Christless religion. Because in Christless Christianity and in Christless religion, we get the glory. Christ doesn't. And so to close, I want to end with two words of application to unbelievers. And I want to end with two words of application for believers. If you're here today and you are not yet a Christian, my word to you is this. Don't let this be you. Don't let this be be you. Do you know, friend, it is never too late to turn to Christ. It is never too late to turn to Christ. I opened the message, didn't I, with the story of Jim Elliot. But if you know the whole story, you know that it didn't end with the martyrdom of five missionaries. Someone said, don't think that Operation Alka ended there because it didn't. In less than two years, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, their daughter Valerie, and Rachel Saint, one of the martyr's wives, were able to move to the Alka village. Many Alkas became Christians. They are now a friendly tribe. Missionaries, including Nate Saint's son and his family, still live among the Alkas today. And even if Stephen's martyr, uh, murderers, rather, turned in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, they would have been forgiven. How can we know that? 
we can know that because they laid their garments at the feet of a young man called Saul, who was looking approvingly on their execution and murder. And in not so long of a time in our series in Acts, Saul will go on to be called Paul. And Paul will preach the gospel. And Paul will turn the world upside down. And Paul would go on to write these words, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy, Paul said, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Friend, that can be you today. And can I also say this, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ... There is so much more joy in gratitude than there is in pride. Do you know, the reality is pride is exhausting. Pride is exhausting because you are constantly having to prop yourself up to appear in a way that would garner the praise of men. But you know, with 8 billion people in the world, that is a lot of competition. And that is a lot of work. And friends, this is one of the reasons that social media is proving to be a cancer in our world today. We're told that anxiety levels have never been as high among young people who are addicted to Facebook and Instagram. Why? Because they are constantly asking the question, who is noticing me? Who is liking me? Who is affirming me? Who is envying me? Why are people, why are not more people liking me and praising me and envying me? And if more people are praising them, it must be because they are better than I am. And it must be because there's something wrong with me. What is wrong with me? And on and on the cycle goes. Pride is exhausting. But you know, since the gospel of Jesus Christ is glorious 24-7, 365 days a year, we can rejoice in the Lord always. We don't have to prop the gospel up. It's just glorious all by itself. And we can glory in the gospel. And we can thank God for the gospel. So what about for us believers? Well, friends, I want to say this. We must recount the cost of following God. Jesus. You hear that? We must count the cost, recount the cost rather, of following Jesus. If we claim to belong to the same faith of the line of godly men that Stephen referred to in Acts chapter 6 and 7, all of whom were despised and rejected, and yet we are not being despised and rejected, we need to ask the question, why? Why? I don't know who said this originally, but somebody once said, the problem with preachers these days is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you, 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When was the last time we were reviled and persecuted and lied about for, your, for our faith in Jesus? Is that happening in our life? Do you know, Jesus also said this, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And woe to the preachers for whom all speak well. That was nothing like Moses. That was nothing like Jeremiah. That was nothing like Isaiah and Jesus and Stephen. And Acts chapter 6 and 7 calls us to recount the cost of following the one who shed his blood for our salvation and for the gospel message that we preach. But Acts chapter 6 and 7 encourages us with this. Following Jesus on the Calvary road will place us in the best of company. Friends, did you notice how the Bible says in many places that when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he did what? He sat down at God's right hand. But Jesus is not sitting here. Jesus isn't sitting in Acts chapter 7. Instead, he is standing. He is standing in order to notice what Stephen is enduring. He is saying, Stephen, I see it. Stephen, I regard it. Stephen, I will reward you for your suffering for my gospel. And may that spur us on to love and good deeds, no matter the cost, in the knowledge that Jesus stands when we suffer and journeys with us on the Calvary road. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. I actually want us to close with the hymn that Jim Elliot and his four co-missionary 